0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Higher than expected job gains drove markets higher, but more than 330,000 new American jobs in September are also likely to drive the Federal Reserve to increase borrowing costs, making servicing America's $33 trillion debt more expensive political uncertainty in Washington over the outlook for a normal budget, Ukraine aid and defense spending, as Republicans seek to elect a new House speaker as the clock winds down on the current funding extension to keep the government open. In the wake of punishing losses on quality control issues in its commercial aviation unit, Spirit AeroSystems CEO Tom Gentili stepped down, replaced by former Deputy Defense Secretary and top Boeing Executive Pat Shanahan, Who's going to focus on addressing production issues that could undermine confidence in the firm and hamstring Boeing's plans to increase 737 production? Sweden rolls out its new A-26 submarine and one of our very own was there to see it. Rheinmetall presses ahead with its major artillery shell contract for Germany and Ukraine. Talus will build the combat management system for Poland's frigates. And Ukraine's Antonov joins Europe's ADS Aerospace and Defense Trade Group. And America's largest defense exhibition, the annual Association of the United States Army's conference and trade show, gets underway tomorrow through Wednesday uh, in Washington, D.C., Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abolafio of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Unfortunately, Sash is going to join us later in the program. So we're going to have Ron and Richard up first. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah. Happy weekend, Vago. Great to be on. Uh, it would not be a weekend if it wasn't for this conversation. So thanks very much for joining us, and I'm sorry all of us couldn't convene, uh, at uh, once. Although there's plenty enough uh, European aerospace and defense news uh, to keep uh, Sash occupied later in the program. Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, pretty monster job numbers uh, at this point, more than three hundred thirty thousand new American jobs. Uh, market was up, but at the same time suggests that the Fed is going to continue increasing uh, borrowing rates to try to cool the economy without tanking it, which is uh, as We've discussed and many others have discussed the, the trick in this. How did the group perform against the broader market?
1: Yeah. So um the you know the real economic news of the week was, was that jobs number. And uh, uh post-the jobs number, uh, if you look at what the market's pricing in, it's about a 56% chance that you're gonna have a rate increase um uh, by the end of the year, so that the Fed will make another another move. And then that sets off this whole debate, like you mentioned, you know, soft landing, hard landing, so on and so forth. Um, the S and P was up, up about half a percent on the week, forty-eight basis points. Um, our group was really mixed. Um, your commercial arrow Boeing as an indicator, it was down about you know a little little over two percent, call two and a quarter percent. Northrop Grumman was down almost four percent. Northrop down two percent. Raytheon down three percent. GD was down uh, only half a percent. Textron was down one and a half percent. Embraer was down almost five and a half percent. Uh, And and kind of if you look at what that's telling you, one, you know, the defense stocks were reacting to kind of the uncertainty in the house. And then, two, some of the the bloom has come off of the commercial aerospace rose. Uh, We're getting more incoming calls from investors asking questions about. Hmm. You know, do the airlines have too much capacity? What's going on here? The numbers at the airlines are getting softer, and you're starting to get these these questions around. Maybe the airlines will have to push some capacity out, and so on and so forth. And um, you know, there's a there's a whole discussion we could have there that you know, given where the OEMs are, I mean, is that even a reality? But um, you you are having you know th- that go on too. It was an interesting week. You had oil come down a lot. You know, the WTI was uh, $83, ended the week at $83, Brent crude at $85. The VIX index was bouncing back and forth between 17 and 20 most of the week, which is higher than where it's been for a while. And then the the kind of the real big one was uh, the 10-year yield. The 10-year yield ended the week at 4.8%. And now the discussion is, is it going to go to 5% or go above 5%? Uh, and, And we'll see. So I think that kind of wraps it up.
0: And and Ron, going back to uh, the uh, the Washington uh, part of this discussion and and debate, um, how concerned are folks about what's next? Right, I mean, there was this sort of certitude that investors sometimes have. Oh, you know, Washington will avoid a government closure. Government closure, you know, doesn't happen. They're like, see, they they made a deal. Then you you get a wrench in the works. Then you have a wrench in the works where the Speaker of the House has voted uh, out of office. Right, I mean, walk us through. Some of the questions you guys have been fielding, because it looks like depending on the speaker's choice and ir- irrespective of whether or not it's Jim Jordan or you know Steve Scalise, the current House number two, um, you know the, the House is going to focus more on debt, uh, which has become uh, an important issue It has always been an important issue for Republicans. It becomes particularly issue if there's a Democrat in the White House and there's an election <laughs> looming. Um, you know the shutdown risk now increases. Uh, there may be a move to curb all government spending, including some defense spending. And certainly, you know, being opposed to Ukraine aid has become a kind of a, a litmus test for some Republicans uh, in the House. So what what are some of the things that investors are telling you about all of these dynamics as as they're, sud- they're They're not sudden, but it may be sudden from an investor's standpoint who might not be paying as close attention?
1: Yeah, given given that this dynamic hasn't really played out exactly this way before, right? We've seen pieces of this, but um you know the, the change in the speaker kind of how that played out we haven't seen right in, i guess a very long time
0: um, we, we've, we've never seen it right i mean he was right. the first others have moved to vacate a speaker but this is the first time that actually they've they've done it right? right so it's kind of unprecedented
1: so you know investors incoming questions from investors are like, all right so what's this all mean so i think people are just trying to get their heads around it um uh, and ultimately you know what. Kind of the big question is, you know, what does it mean for um, defense spending as we kind of go into 24? Um, do we have a shutdown? And that's an open debate. There, some people are saying maybe, some people are saying no. I mean, it's it's a debate, um, but it it raised uncertainty, and you know, the market never likes uncertainty, and, and that's why I think you saw the defense stocks do what they did this week, uh, and 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 I think investors are just trying to form a thesis on you know, kind of where could where could things go. What's this mean for, you know, budgets into an election year? What's it mean for stock performance into an election year? Because if you look at the defense stocks, historically, uh, during an election year, about 80% of the time, if you go back for you know, the last call it 12, 13 presidential elections, about 80% of the time, the defense stocks outperformed a broader market during a presidential election year, and they do it pretty meaningfully, right? So I, I think if you you look at the average over that period of time, they outperformed uh, the S&P by, by over a thousand basis points or meaningful outperformance during the presidential election year, independent of who's running, who's seen, you know, as, you know, as kind of the, the lead candidate and that sort of thing. You know, does this dynamic change that or not? You know, my bias is probably not, but it just kind of raises uncertainty or, or around the whole thing.
0: Um- Richard do you want to add anything uh, to that before we get to passenger air traffic numbers and get into our discussion about Spirit and uh you know this this plan that Boeing has to go up to 57 airplanes
2: well just to state the obvious of course which is that uh, you know things are fine until they aren't you know we've got paralysis and the big question has now become how do you support ukraine uh because even though a majority of americans want to keep support going you've had the situation where the uh, the majority party of the house has been hijacked by people who uh, totally see vladimir putin's point of view so how do you get around that how do we keep uh, that support going. It's the biggest question I can see in the in the defense environment resulting from the political chaos of the past week.
0: Um, and I, I should point out, right? I mean, uh, there is an overwhelming amount of support both in the House and Senate for Ukraine spending. So, so there are a variety of different mechanisms that are being explored. And it will depend on whether Jim Jordan, who has uh, the backing and support of Donald Trump, becomes speaker uh, because he is one of the people who's opposed to it. The way that he puts it, Americans would rather see that money spent in the United States, if anywhere, uh, rather uh, than Ukraine, as opposed to being uh, perhaps, you know, even if it has the effect of becoming uh, Putin's uh, handmaiden. Uh, let me take you to passenger air traffic numbers. We've discussed this sort of weekly. There's the sentiment, right? Chinese are traveling more. Um, you, know, b- b- you know, airplanes are full. We just recently got back from a, a vacation. Um, you know, the system is, is groaning. Um, you know, we can't launch airplanes on time. Virtually every flight is uh, delayed. We have more incidents on the airplane that we were on uh, coming back from our international trip. Uh, we had to abort landing. Uh, because uh, there was somebody ahead of us and we were on a full triple seven at the time that this happened and great work on the part of the flight crew. There was not, you know, it was as smoothly executed an abort as you could imagine. And, you know, in Testament to the skills uh, of the, of the air crew and their attentiveness, Um, you know, and there's this sense, there's going to be more traffic. Guys are buying more airplanes. On the other hand, we're looking at some of these trends and saying, well, actually, there might not be that traffic. I mean, what, what's the latest in this, Sort of, you know, almost bipolar reaction to where we are and where we're going on uh, the the air transport market, uh, air traffic market, in part because also it's driving orders. You know, some of it is efficient. Anyway, walk us through sort of where we are and what we're ha- what's happening and what is it we should expect, and whether fifty-seven airplanes, you know, triple seven seven thirty-sevens a month, you know, makes sense.
2: Yeah, you know, um, and obviously that was one of the big leaks this week with uh, Boeing's plan uh, to get to fit. I mean, it was commonly known, but it was confirmed when the the documentation basically leaked out. the uh, The situation is really positive, uh, but as you say, there's this there's this fear. I, I think you could term it a, a fear of the great division sign. If you remember those old fashioned division signs, uh, where there's this big V at the at the front and then things plateau out. I think there's an understandable concern that that's what we're seeing. Or oh, well, that's what we might see, and it's sort of related to uh, you know the broader economic picture that Ron has talked about at at at, uh, at at length. You know, there's you know we've we've successfully forecasted twelve of the last six economic downturns and recessions everyone is a bit skittish but so far you know all of the news all the macroeconomic news continues to surprise on the upside with job gains yesterday being particularly excellent uh so i tend to think that the demand will be there but again people are understandably skittish uh one thing about the numbers one of the key reasons we're not hundred percent of 2019 we're within seven or eight percent i believe is uh, that China has come back 110% domestically and about 45% internationally. You know, fog on channel, China cut off. Uh, this is a country that's now happy to go isolationist on us and recreate the very happy Soviet experience for some stupid reason uh, in so many different ways. And it's showing up in the air travel numbers. That takes a little bit of a, a, bit of a crimp out of international numbers. But otherwise... Things are excellent coming back. Will they plateau out? I tend to think not. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think we've got some really good years ahead. It doesn't help that everybody, including my orga- organization, sees a long-term threat to growth numbers. Everybody has downshifted from 4.9 year-over-year RPK growth to something in the threes. I think our latest number is like 3.2. But I'm keen uh-huh. to point out that's more of a long-term issue. I believe completely uh, in in downshifting in the long term, but in the in the for the next five years or so, I think things are going to be pretty robust. Now, to be fair, you're seeing a bit of a turnaround, most notably IAG joining United this week with uh, plans for a major wide body order. That's welcome news, uh, because, of course, you know, when we get the air traffic system and the labor situation sorted out, we don't want to be court, caught uh, shorthanded when it comes to uh, to jetliners. So this is definitely welcome news. Overall, I'm bullish. I think this too shall pass. It's just taking a lot longer than expected for so many reasons, first and foremost of which is that skittishness associated with uh, never knowing where your next growth the spurt is going to come from.
0: Ron, anything you want to add to that before we get to the the spirit uh, and
1: production numbers? Yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple of thoughts. Um, I, I agree with Richard completely on that. Um, and and when, when you think about let's just use united as an example united has on order about 700 airplanes that they're going to take over the next decade the large majority of those are replacement aircraft um not a big chunk of that is actually for growth right so um, if united wants to grow beyond that they kind to order even more airplanes and you know, a lot of what's been ordered is going to replace you know old early generation seven six sevens five sevens that kind of thing so um, you know, the, the part of it's that, and then the other thing, if you look at the supply chain challenges that we've talked for back years about on, on the podcast, um, that's constrained what Boeing and Airbus can deliver on, on top of that, you know, the COVID shutdown on top of that, you know, the max shutdown going into COVID you know, the balance of narrow bodies was, it was imbalanced, right? You, you, I don't think you could argue there was an oversupply of narrow bodies, um, at that time. And and, and wide bodies, I think you could argue there wasn't oversupply that's been absorbed and you know, that's, that's coming back. And, and when you combine that with the supply chain constraints, that the, the you know, Boeing and Airbus, no one could argue that Boeing and Airbus are throwing too many airplanes on the market. They're they're lagging the market. So even if you were to see some, some slowdown, um, it, it's almost inconceivable that it's going to impact deliveries because nobody's delivering what they needed to be delivering in, in, in the first place. So um you know for better or for worse the supply chain I think has made you know this ramp up probably more elongated and kind of more more steady in some ways less predictable a little more volatile but that volatility is not coming from the demand side it's coming from the supply side which is a point I think Richard pointed out many times before so um I'm I'm on board with Richard as you look out over the next five years um it's it's hard to see outside of some really bad exogenous event that impacts the industry in the world that you're gonna see demand for airplanes do anything but go up. Uh, in, indeed,
0: and for which which, uh, in a sense, so what does that do for pricing, right? I mean, if we have more airplanes, that should make it easier. But then again, if they're just replacement airplanes, what happens? Because we've seen ticket prices, whether in the front of the cabin or the back of the cabin or any other point in between, really kind of going up.
1: My, my sense on this, and it might be interested to hear what Richard has to say, a lot of that had to do with a lot of uh, extra discretionary income in you know people's wallets because of um, the, the COVID stimulus and so on and so forth. And, and and what do you want to call it? Revenge travel, right? I mean, everybody was boxed up for a couple of years, and everybody wanted to go out and travel now. And, and I think we're starting to see this in the consumer world too. That things are starting to normalize, um, and travel will start to normalize. And 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 I think one of the things, my interpretation of. How investors are looking at what's going on in commercial aerospace markets uh the skittishness we're just getting back to a little more cyclic, you know seasonal cyclicality that we see in air travel anyway um right. after you get through the summer where the slow season is is now right um so we're starting to see that seasonal slowdown and that might be freaking some people out but that's just sort of normal and getting back to kind of how things used to be before everything got disrupted richard
2: Yeah, complete agreement, of course, you know, it's um, the dimly remembered before times, right? (laughs) You know, we had (laughs) seasonal cyclicality rather than just an endless, uh, you know, uh, one terrible, terrible drought followed by a terrible, terrible flood. Um, That, to a certain extent, is welcome news. And, of course, that flood was indeed accelerated, increased, what have you, magnified by you know, leftover cash and, you know, the great stimulus, as it were, you know, I mean, one of the principles of Bidenomics was, of course, to run the economy hot. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't just the stimulus, it was a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, that put cash in people's hands. And, uh, you know, when that whole, we can only spend it on goods rather than experiences because of the pandemic thing expired, they quickly took that flood and turned it over to experiences. I think that's running its course right now.
0: And we've seen that reflected, right? I mean, we've seen real-term wage uh increases uh over the past couple of years for many Americans. So uh that's uh that certainly helped people be able to take an extra trip and maybe be a little bit more understanding about paying, you know, twenty two hundred dollars to get across the Atlantic as opposed to although there are still a lot of discount carriers who will get you across to the other side of the ocean uh and and do it well and and do it uh, relatively inexpensively. Um let's move the discussion to Spirit, uh, one of the truly important uh, companies uh, in uh, the space. But before we do that, uh, a quick word from all of our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval uh, coverage. Um, and I should also point out that uh, recently Spirit air Systems Defense and Space did sponsor our coverage of uh, the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. Um, That out of the way, um, Spirit has had uh, a number of challenges that we've discussed, quality uh, challenges that have impeded uh, and interfered with production. It's driven costs. It's caused frustration uh, at its biggest customer, Boeing. Tom Gentilly uh, last week uh, resigned as the CEO uh, of the company and was replaced by deputy, uh, former deputy defense secretary uh, and former senior Boeing executive Pat Shanahan. Somebody uh, with a uh, reputation for being somebody who can execute. Obviously, you know, it was uh, one of the forces behind the 787 uh, program. Uh, although that was a program that also had challenges, he was somebody who kind of tried to drive it uh, forward. Ron, you know, what were the specific factors uh, that? Uh, prompted this uh, decision ultimately by by Spirit and by Tom. Uh, And, you know, what are the expectations, right? What's on Pat Shanahan's plate in terms of uh, delivery? Because there is no way that Boeing is getting to 57, 737s a month unless, right, Spirit is firing on all cylinders, given that those are basically, you know, pretty complete fuselages when they show up at Renton. Right, the the key to success on how the tiniest airplane factory in the world produces so many airplanes is they get pretty complete airplanes that are ready to fuselages that are ready to go from Boeing uh, from Spirit.
1: Yeah, I mean, what typically prompts something like this is share price. Uh, you know, Spirit shares at uh, under seventeen dollars is as low as they've been in a very very long time, um, and that usually kind of gets everybody going. Um, so, one share price, two their biggest customers, two of them, Boeing. they're biggest by far, but Airbus is a very big customer too, um having issues. So I'm, I'm certain that made its way back to to the board. Um, so a change had to be made. I think that was kind of obvious for uh, for a lot of people for a long time um and and it and it was done. Um, and if you look at Pat Shanahan, uh, we all know him, well, you know an alumni, of Boeing, uh, spent over thirty years at Boeing, various roles, ran supply chain, uh, was in you know the, the Boeing Defense. Uh, I think uh, was you know is was credited with turning around the seven eight seven program in its darkest days, uh, way back when. Um, is viewed as a very very capable operating manager. Um, I I think the real question with with his appointment is he's an interim CEO. He's not a permanent CEO. Um, they have an ongoing search for a permanent CEO. So, question one is, will he become the permanent CEO? One, and then two, if it's not him, who is it? And then three, uh, what's his plan? Is his plan to turn it around, or maybe do something strategic with it? That's that's an open question. Um, if you look at you know Boeing's history with other and
0: and by and by strategic, you mean a sale of the company or a merger or some other action. Or, or that, something like that.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, if you look at Boeing's history with underperforming suppliers, you know, just look at the South Carolina campus and um, that was originally not Boeing's campus, right. I mean, it was bought aircraft and global aeronautica uh, and through various strategic moves to sort everything out, it ended up being Boeing's campus. Um, and I'm not saying that Boeing's going to buy spirit. I, mean, I, I, I have you know, nothing to, base that on. Uh, but can you imagine you know, something strategic happening? Sure, you could. Uh, or maybe he fixes it. You just don't know. But I think expectations are high. Um, and then the next question about Spirit is they have a balance sheet that's very, very extended. Uh, and in 2025, they have debt coming due. Uh, you know, how are they going to handle that? So there's there's a lot of moving parts to this. So, so having a very capable person in that role is important. Uh,
0: and we should point out, right, Bo- Boeing, uh wichita uh was a very uh important um uh, part uh of uh the equation and eventually right became spirit
1: exactly exactly right if you if you look at the history of spirit spirit was um what we know today as spirit was a fabrication facility that was sold to uh onyx uh capital i think they're called onyx capital um a canadian private equity company uh that took it and acquired some things and and made a business out of it. Now, kind of the open question is and and I think this has kind of lingered over spirit. Spirit was a fabrication facility, it was a factory. It was never a business. Right. Uh and then, you know, a business was kind of forced on it. And, at, and my sense is from looking at this for many many years is they've struggled with that over the years. It's it's a it's a hard um I think you know, it's a hard challenge to um a difficult hurdle to to kind of work work through that. And aerostructures itself um, is a difficult business because you just don't have the, you know, the, the, the leverage um, that you do. And I don't mean debt leverage, but leverage across product lines that you do on say electronics business. So if you were to you know juxtapose say um, Collins aerospace and what they do in avionics, you can develop an, a, a, a suite of electronics and use it across many different aircraft. And in some cases you could even use it on, you know, ground systems and, you you can't do that with aerostructures. structures. I mean when you have a 737 production line the only thing that can go down that is 737 fuselage. You can't leverage it onto other airplanes and so it makes the business much more difficult to uh to to run.
0: At long time known as section 41 uh if I uh, if memory uh, serves uh correct section, out there is section 41 is the
1: nose of the 787. Right. Um, yeah, that's right
0: um so uh richard um what are some of the things and to both of you right what are some of the things that pat's got to do to you know i mean some of these are aft bulkhead i mean you know some of these are things that folks find perplexing now some of these are really attributed to uh, subcontractors and potentially defective components but it's the obligation of Uh, whoever the prime is for the component in question to make sure that there are not maybe those kind of quality issues. But occasionally it happens. We're producing airplanes at a high rate. It doesn't appear uh, that there are safety of flight issues. I think that those have been addressed, but still they need to be rectified at at some point, right? I mean, what are some of the things uh, that everybody is looking for Pat to do and really the timescale he has to be able to start executing to get confidence, right? I mean, how much time are investors in the community and suppliers in Boeing going to be giving um, the company to, to resolve this, right? Because there's a perception that earlier problems weren't resolved and now we're seeing new problems, right? And Ron, as you pointed out a couple of times, right? I mean, this is kind of, it's, it's amazed people that they haven't been able to get their arms wrapped around this at a time when the company has been growing its business space and expanding in defense and expanding in space and hypersonics and elsewhere.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, first of all, the the good news is, uh, echoing Ron, of course, that Pat Shanahan is the guy. I mean, great Boeing reputation in relations and, of course, an extremely solid reputation as an execution person. Um, The bad news is he is the guy. If he can't make it happen, then I'm not so sure what can. Uh, What does he have to do? Well, first of all, um, he, (laughs) you know, has to explain to Boeing something they really do not want to hear which is that, oh, did you enjoy the past decade using your supply base as uh, an ATM? Well, you need to stop that. Uh, you know, partnering for success and all the other stuff sounded great at the time, but it missed its primary targets, you know, the, the folks who were making fat margins, and hit its uh, unintended co- uh, targets, which is like you know low margin aerostructures structures businesses with no aftermarket that they could raid. Uh, that needs to stop. In other words, contracts need to be repriced otherwise they won't have the resources particularly labor needed to make the problem right so that's going to take some uh, some tough negotiations and maybe pat is the guy to do it or maybe mike says oh we really uh, we really respect what gm did with delphi and so many other happy experiences of squeezing the you know the life's blood out of the supply chain we're going to keep doing that just because we feel like it and nothing gets done um, you know, at this point, I also should echo my, uh, my good friend and, and, uh, and colleague at uh, Aerodynamic. Kevin Michaels wrote a great piece this week at Aviation Week about basically he posits that the aerospace sector is one colossal market failure. You know, if the entire industry, the one thing that hasn't worked out is aerostructures. And you know, there was the horrible Vought and Triumph experience, and Triumph walked away and Vought was you know shoved off. Um, Leonardo wasn't happy in their aerostructures business, and what's left of it still isn't. Uh GKN Melrose, um, yeah, not really super eager to keep going down that path um and the japanese uh, but they've always taken a long-term view and they've solely restricted themselves to wide body risk sharing partnerships so that might not be uh you know the the potential future so from the standpoint of, of pat doing something strategic as ron said i'm not so sure what that is because there's not a lot of uh, well strategic partners that would say yeah we're going to double down on the aerostructure space it's such a great place to do business i don't think that exists uh, I think it's better execution and then a lot of that again comes down to explaining to Boeing that things need to change, things need to be repriced and uh, after that, you do what everything, do everything you can to to improve the numbers. And you know they'll hopefully be able to make it right. I mean, there should be an accommodation here. It's a market like any other. It's a dialogue between people who have something and people who want something. Boeing wants to get to 57 per month on the 737. they need to give their partner what they need to make that happen it's really simple and if they can't trust pat to be the guy who can execute in the most cost-effective way they're not going to trust anybody so you know go in and take it over yourself i don't think they want to do that for reasons that ron has explained so look there's got to be a way forward here but in terms of uh, obstacles yeah they're (laughs) they're formidable Ron,
0: I mean, you mentioned the long-time challenges. I mean, does Richard have the right prescription? Is there anything else uh, they need to do? And does the order for 50 more Dreamliners from United actually complicate this problem as opposed to alleviate it?
1: Um, I don't think the United order complicates things. Um, the In the end, at least the way I think about it, it's it's a zero-sum game. and And I think this is what's impacted aerostructures structures as an industry um in particular spirit um the economics that Boeing were to give to spirit it's economics that Boeing would give up and due to at this point their smaller position in defense and lack of aftermarket really the only place they can make money is off off the OE um and to Richard's point if they wanna go down the path of renegotiating, then they have to do that. Now, with Pat in that seat, that actually might be more plausible because just you imagine, Bago, right? You've got, you haven't got an issue. You're not confident in the leadership to fix that issue. Are you gonna give them more money? Maybe not. If you have confidence that you've got leadership in place that can fix it, m- maybe you're more apt to give them more money to fix things and move on. So. Um, I I think probably along either vector, um, a a let's fix it and renegotiate or let's do something different, strategic or otherwise. Like Richard said, Shanahan's the man. Um, It's going to take time. And that gets back to my first point. How long is he going to be the man? A year's probably not long enough. Right. So does he get a full appointment? Does he want a full appointment? I don't know. Um, And if it's not him, who is it? Um, Let's
0: uh, shift uh, quickly uh, to uh, defense. Are there any big defense uh, stories that we uh, missed or should spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about? And then do want to get, Ron, uh, your take on your expectations as well as yours uh, R- Richard, uh, on what uh, you guys expect to hear from the Association of the United States Army. You know, there's the U.S. Army leadership and industry leaders uh, at AUSA. Obviously, the Association of the United States Army shows is the biggest Army event. It's the biggest American defense show uh, by an order of magnitude in some place where the Army, you know, saves up and industry saves up a lot of announcements uh, to kind of uh, roll out. Ron, you know, start us off either on AUSA or any other story, and then transition AUSA and Richard yours as well, right? I mean, there is still a lot of aviation programs the United States Army is going. It's one of the largest aircraft operators in the U.S. military, which I think people have a tendency of forgetting uh, sometimes, even though it may be overshadowed by cool things like the B-21. They're doing Flora. They're pressing ahead on FARA, uh, as well as you know, keeping the Black Hawk fleet updated and and work going on on the Chinook, as well as unmanned systems. Anyway, go ahead, uh, Ron and Richard, you.
1: Yeah, my, my, my sense, I'll just start with uh, AUSA. Um, I'm expecting it to be sort of an everything is awesome kind of event, meaning there's you know clearly uncertainty on the Hill, but when you just look at the funding for programs, outlays, orders, replenishment of U.S. inventory, munitions, I would imagine it's going to be a pretty darn upbeat show. I'll be astonished um, um, if it's not um at the show uh, some of the the companies we follow will have investor events you know general dynamics land systems will be uh, meeting with investors uh bae systems will be as well so uh, maybe there'll be some you know company news that comes out of that uh, more specific company news but i would say broadly at the show i'm expecting it to be quite upbeat um and um yeah so I'll, yeah yeah i'll leave it at that
2: richard your take yeah you know agree completely i think the big News since say a USA two years ago, of course, is Ukraine. And if we'd had this conversation then or if Ukraine hadn't happened, it, things would be pretty despondent because at the end of the day, two years ago, th- the only thing people could talk about was reprioritizing for the Pacific Theater. That meant naval and air assets. <laughs> you know, Army is big loser. Army is trying to, you know, reinvent itself with FARA and FARA and FBL to some relevance in the Pacific Rim, that obviously has completely changed. Uh, Russia's Ukraine invasion clearly makes land systems a lot more relevant. And not only that, as Ron says, there's been so much of a, you know, well, destockpiling <laughs> of so many army things, uh, munitions mostly, but not just munitions, that there's a case to be made for recapitalizing with, uh, with newer generation systems. So I think it'll probably be, a, as Ron says, an everything is happy show, um, just because of this dynamic, we now have the situation where the two big strategic drivers, you know, as, as Kath Hick said it a few months ago, as uh, Undersecretary Hicks said it, you know, there's the pacing threat, the acute threat, and they're completely synergistic from the standpoint of defense requirements, uh, very well balanced. So it's kind of going to be a happy show, as, as Ron says. In other big news, uh, I noticed this week the last JSTARS uh, made its final flight. And uh, yeah, after 30 years of uh, very impressive service, and it, it sort of reminds us just how the, uh, the ISR architecture has gotten so much more fragmented, you know, between everything from drones all the way up to fragmented satellite constellations like Starlink and whatever else. Um, and the whole concept of, you know, big ISR platforms seems to be perhaps on the way out slowly. Obviously, the Air Force is sticking with the AWACS concept, probably for right reasons. Uh, but everything else is getting very fragmented very fast. So uh, here's to JSTARS and it's amazing 30 year run, but it uh, looks like it's uh, its time is going. Uh,
0: an ACTD that ran 30 years, isn't that amazing? An advanced technology demonstrator program, you know, uh, and uh, having covered it and all the challenges associated with it, uh, it still gave some extraordinary uh, service um thanks very much uh guys uh really appreciate it thanks so much for joining us uh and uh look forward to having everybody on together next week
1: thanks vago as always
2: it's great to be here yeah you it a lot thanks vago
0: and joining us now is sash tusa of the independent equity research firm agency partners uh in london uh now from the latest in uh, one of his far-flung travels sash thanks very much for joining us and sorry you couldn't join everybody at once yeah, I'm, it, it, it's a great shame, Valgate, but I'm delighted that we, we can still get uh, get together for this week. Uh, indeed, I've uh, been very, very excited uh, to hear from you about the A26 and a lot of stuff uh, going on, uh, obviously, in, in uh, European uh, defense. Just really quickly reminding our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Kavis Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own uh, J. J.J. Uh, Gertler. Sash, uh, just really quickly, right? I mean, we spent uh, a large portion of the discussion discussing uh, Spirit Aerosystems, Tom Gentile's, uh departure from the company and Pat Shanahan joining uh, the company in order to sort of address some of the production challenges that they've had, as you know, you heard from Sash Um you know, it, it was a production facility, not really an independent business. It was squeezed really hard, as Richard said, uh, you know, from its inception as, as the, a former Boeing facility in Wichita um, for, uh, you know, to be as cheap as possible. You know, one of the things Richard said is, you know, it, it would be good if Shanahan uses his contacts at Boeing to say, hey, look, you, you got to be a little bit less tough uh, on these uh, suppliers. Again, you know, GKN, uh, obviously one of the most storied names in aerospace as well, uh, had challenges, right? It's a very tough business uh, to be in. And the company supplies both Boeing and is key to going to 57, and it also supplies Airbus, uh, ultimately. Give us your sense on on this uh, drama. uh, And what is it that can be learned from Airbus uh, in this, uh, which is now at higher production
3: rates than Boeing is across the piece? Yeah. Well, look. I mean, first of all, Spirit is a very, also a very important supplier to Airbus, although nowhere near as important as as it is to uh, Boeing. But I mean, part of Spirit's diversification, both through winning new contracts, but also through uh, buying the the Shorts business in uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland, has been to uh, you know to try to to establish business uh, business businesses that would counterbalance uh, the exposure to uh, Boeing. And that meant getting Airbus work wherever possible. Um, uh, here's the interesting thing, I think. I mean, I, I think it's very sad, the situation that Spirit has got into, but I mean, it's by no means a, a surprise. If you have a um, a process which involves continually bearing down on your suppliers and you're in a market that is as tough to uh, work in as aerostructures is, eventually one of them will break. And it was very interesting before the whole uh, COVID um, uh, pandemic, Airbus, you know, was uh, looking at all of its suppliers with what they called a watchtower process. And it was always the aerostructures companies that were close to breaking. I mean, it's very seldom the, the systems companies that were causing it uh, massive problems. Um. Airbus was very, very behind Boeing's curve in uh, diversifying or or actually spinning out its aerostructures business. Airbus had a process they called Power 8 launched in 2008, which was trying to copy what uh, Boeing did uh, with Spirit in terms of spinning it out. But because Airbus is European, they couldn't actually go the whole hawk. So what they did was they created standalone aerostructures businesses as uh, suppliers in Germany, and in France, and the idea was that at some stage in the further and in, in in, in, in for future time, they would spin them out. And in, in the meantime, they would just run them very much on a standalone basis. Well, here's a surprise. Um, in, the, in the last 18 months, but really in the last 12 months or so, Airbus has come to the conclusion that that strategy is wholly unsupportable. And so what they're doing is they are they are absorbing these businesses back into Airbus. They said AeroStructures is a core business. What, uh, you know, we Airbus do is produce high, high-end high AeroStructures. And they've admitted that the strategy of Power8, um, while it might have been uh, appropriate at the time, it was certainly trying to copy what Boeing was doing spirit, just is no longer appropriate. Um, and so... You know, I think um, the ideas that we've heard, which is that at some stage Boeing might reabsorb spirit and, you know, our view would be they should reabsorb spirit. You can't be uh, an aircraft OEM and not be in control of production of your core components and major assemblies. Uh,
0: this was also part of uh, sort of the, the, the um, you know, you, you realize over time folks have uh, ideas that might sound uh, better on Wall Street than they do in reality. Uh, right you, you so right. make and not make uh, airplanes not make your wings and at one point right uh, under but you know I, as I recall it was under Mike Sears who's um, you know heritage uh, McDonnell was like hey we can just be the intellectual property guy who does the designing and then we can put this you know sort of distribute the production around the world you know sort of out Airbus at its game not fully appreciating that actually the key to Airbus was they build the airplane the what airbus did better was not be the oem of the landing gear for example and not the oem for a lot of the other subcomponent parts right boeing would buy messier dowdy forgings and into landing gear uh safran would produce full up landing gear and, and and ship it uh to airbus to arrive at a specific time to go on airplane so anyway uh, this is a little bit of an ancient history lesson there for our audience um I want to get to uh, the submarine uh, contract uh, in a minute, but but that's sort of, you know, more enjoyable, broader discussion. Let's go through some of the headlines first. Uh, let's start off with uh, Rheinmetall, obviously um, absolutely critical supplier of surge production, the likes of which I don't think anybody in Europe has seen. Uh, probably uh, since uh, maybe sometime in the Cold War, but certainly uh, maybe uh, even, uh, you know, pre-World War II in terms of uh, the, the surge that we've seen across the European defense sector. Um, walk us through the formalization of the indefinite, right, the IDIQ contract the company had with Germany and Ukraine, uh, because this sort of marks a turning point in where we're going
3: uh, in terms of the future of munition supply in Europe. Yeah. Um, so so you know, we talked about Rheinmetall. Rheinmetall's huge order intake in munitions uh, last week. Um, quite a lot of the orders they've been getting from Germany are what are called frame or nomination contracts. And I think one of the things that you and I were laughing rather bitterly about earlier on is that you know if, if we ever needed reinforcement to the idea that we're two nations uh, separated by a common language, this is it. So here, in, in European parlance, these are called frame contracts. In the US, you'd call them IDIQs, indefinite uh, d- uh, duration, indefinite quantity. Um, uh, but in Europe, they're called frame contracts, framework contracts. And when those are turned from um, uh, you know a broad uh, scale, a broad idea to actually the formal press the button, produce the stuff, we pay you for it. That's referred to in Europe as a call-off. But of course, you would use that term to describe cancellation. So I think you know there was a, there was a, a bit of confusion here. But what we're seeing now is the big uh, frame contract that Rheinmetall had for got for artillery a couple of weeks ago has now been turned into um, uh, or has you know, the, the German government have pressed the button on that and said go. We now want a billion euros plus of uh, ammunition. We want, and they've they've told Rheinmetall exactly what nature's they want. Here's the interesting thing. Okay, most of the the ammunition is for Germany, which will then supply a big proportion of it to Ukraine. But some of the ammunition, this is all 155 millimeter artillery, is actually the British ammunition standard called L-15. And the reason for that is Germany is now buying 155 millimeter ammunition built to UK standards to be fired out of British AS-90 self-propelled guns by Ukraine. This is how confusing the, the Ukrainian logistics system is getting. This is how confusing the, um, uh, the the supply of ammunition to Ukraine is getting. But, you know, as long as the Ukrainians get the right rounds for the right guns that they have. And remember, they've got guns from the US, from France, from Germany, from the UK, all 155 millimeter, but they all perform best with their, their traditional round. What a waste of standardization that was. Um, so Germany's buying UK standard ammunition for supply to Ukraine. Rheintal is build, building it. And you're absolutely right. They are now working at probably the highest level they have been since the end of the Cold War. And it's only going to get bigger. Um, they're going to be building uh, or producing as many artillery rounds by the end of next year uh, as, the U- uh, as the US is currently building. And that's all just one company. So um, it's really encouraging to see the, uh, you know, it's a flywheel, it takes a long time to spin up, but boy, when it does, it's very powerful.
0: Let me just ask one follow on that, right? How much more upside uh, is there uh, on these uh, orders? And what are, because one of the concerns you've expressed is even with this ramp up, we might not be producing as much shells as quickly as we need to, given the rates of fire the Ukrainians are gonna need. And also if you look at where the Russians are going in their production. What are the next steps required for the Ukrainians to have access uh, to the amount of rounds they need for real world operations, especially for next uh, year? uh, Because right now they're digging the bottom of the barrel when it comes to ammunition. Uh, And the flip side of that is uh, to be able to build margin for European militaries who've been expending Uh, their stockpiles by giving them to the ukrainians right i mean this is kind of a perfect storm so what are the subsequent orders that are necessary to get us to where it is we need to be as opposed to you know where where we're going to be
3: after this tranche of orders i think it's going to be same again and same again and same again and the tempo is going to pick up i would expect to see an order of similar uh, size from germany probably by the end of this year and then another one in NQ one or into Q2 of next year. So Germany will be ordering as much artillery ammunition quarterly as it was every 18 months uh, before the Ukrainian war started. Same goes for the UK. Yeah, We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that, um, uh, in fact, it was one of the headlines coming out of the DSEI show that the UK had announced uh, the start of ammunition production buildup back in July. And at DSEI, they increased it by 50%. Just the same order, they said, make it bigger. I would expect the UK to um, uh, increase, you know, to, to formalise an increase of production again, if not by the end of this year, certainly into next year, and it's just going to keep on going. Other European nations tend to keep this stuff slightly closer to their chest. Let's be honest; they don't tend to publicise it as much. But I think you're, you, it's going to be the tempo of orders that we see. Um, I think with Germany, what frankly what they're going to want to do is just to make sure that Rheinmetall Rein, Rein- can deliver at the pace that they have now formalised. Uh, this contract at, and as soon as they feel remotely confident about that, place another order. Place another order, and oh, I th- well, and cool. I think just what I would say is that the the catalyst, the other catalyst for this, is not a production capability catalyst. It's going to be uh, and this good, good an easy way of saying this: just how um, concerned is Europe about the ability of the US to um, supply in in similar manner? If the US doesn't, then I think that's going to scare the europeans big time and the the shenanigans concerning uh speaker mccarthy this week has clearly been a concern for european nations if we're going to have to do it ourselves then um that's going to get even more expensive as european leaders have even said right the united states pulls out of this we're going to have a
0: we're never going to be able to fill uh that void uh any anytime soon uh let's quickly get to the talus because time is running short Uh, the talus um Uh, award uh to build the combat management systems uh for poland's frigates uh great order and part of the broader uh, military modernization obviously poland has been spending an extraordinary amount of money on its land forces naval forces right i mean air i mean it's just been an incredible
3: investment on the part of warsaw walk us through what this contract means the poles are buying uh warships to a design by Babcock of the uk but clearly very very uh i mean polish manufactured in their entirety but poland has a fairly nascent um uh, uh you know industry in terms of defense electronics. So um radars, sonars and so forth are are all being bought from aboard. The combat management system is incredibly important uh you know in any warship because it's it's the system that basically ties every other uh sensor and weapon system in together. And what I find fascinating is that the combat management system for warships in Europe is it's pretty nearly becoming a two horse race. There's TALIS and TALIS tends to produce the highest end combat management systems. I mean, they, they had a contract a couple of months ago for um, the complete refurbishment of the Horizon air defense uh, destroyers operated by um, uh, France and Italy. And that's a very, very big, you know, big issue for for, for a CMS Um here they are doing Poland. Um, they also got a contract for the uh, Netherlands. But then, really only a, a little bit down, um, Saab. And Saab is the combat management supplier of choice, interestingly, to the uh, Royal Australian Navy. They do most of the Australian Navy's surface ships. So you've got these two European companies here who are fighting for um, uh, similar contracts. In the US, I think this would be a natural for Lockheed Martin. But these are very, very... Uh, these are both have got capabilities of producing... Uh, very open architecture combat management systems, and in the case of the poles, I think because they're looking for high-end frigates, they went for they went for Talis. It's a it's a great example, actually, of how, as you say, I mean, the poles are ordering, they're recapping all of their uh, armed services at once.
0: Um, And uh, to continue in the Ukraine theme, uh, it was interesting uh, that, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion of uh, NATO enlargement at the EU uh, 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 Leadership Summit in uh, Granada, obviously, another focus was on uh, migration. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that uh, Ukraine's Antonov was admitted into ADS. Uh, how important a symbolic decision is that? Before we
3: get to the uh, uh, the A twenty six discussion, oh, look, I mean, uh, short answer is it's symbolic, but that's it. Um, uh, but I think the, the, no, there's, there's more to it than that. I think the more that Ukrainian institutions are entered into uh, European institutions or Ukrainian organisations, the more they have to become. European or US Western, basically. So it will change Ukrainian culture quite significantly. Um, As an example, an awful lot of Ukrainian institutions, particularly in the military, still have names that come straight out of the Soviet Union, you know, the Directorate of Artillery and Rockets. I mean, that's something that Stalin would have felt very familiar with. Um, uh, Ukraine is becoming much more Western, but I get the feeling that a lot of its institutions still, uh, you know, have got sort of Soviet structures and uh, uh, and so forth. And you know, coming into an organization like ADS, that will that's part of the Westernization process. Uh,
0: and let me ask you uh, the last question. You visited Saab. You saw the A26 as well
3: as uh, their uh, surface ship production. Walk us through what your key takeaways were. Yeah. Okay. So um, Saab uh, operates uh, their main production site in the um, uh, port of Karlskrona down in southern Sweden, and they make submarines. How come the Swedes make submarines? Because submarines is really difficult. And historically, particularly in Europe, there had been a a, a view, however ruefully accepted, that it was really hard to be a producer of conventional diesel electric submarines. If you didn't have an installed base of about a dozen submarines, i.e. you were producing submarines with a um, 25 year life and you were producing them about one every two years. And if you couldn't produce at that rate with that visibility, you weren't viable. And that was why the Dutch left the submarine markets, why the Italians left the submarine market. Uh, They just didn't have the installed base. Uh, And. My concern has always been with Saab that might be the same. Actually, this was a real eye opener of a visit. First of all, the A26 submarine, which is the submarine they're producing for Sweden now. So I mean, these are not um, submarines the way that you and I think and talk about them, you know, the classic uh, nuclear powered UK, US, French submarines. Um, they're small. They are 2,000 ton or less boats, so about a third of the ton of a, uh, a le- oh, sorry, a third of the size of, a, of an SSN. Um, they are uh, very lean crewed. Uh, average crew size probably 28 30 30. Uh, again, that's less than a third of, of what you'd get on a on a US or a UK uh, submarine. But they're designed to to often operate on the bottom of uh, and and uh, pl- of, of the Baltic. They're designed for very, very different conditions of salinity and temperature, um, uh, and so forth, and uh, they have a very, very interesting weapon fit. Indeed, two different sizes of submarine of, of sorry of torpedoes: twenty one inch and fifteen inch torpedoes. The fifteen inch torpedoes appear to be uh, optimized for being launched. Uh, in a dual use. You know, it's like firing both barrels of shotgun at the same time. These are all lessons that SARP and Sweden has been learning over 80, 90 years of submarine operations in the Baltic. Uh, So incredibly optimized for that role. Um, But why why does a company like Saab uh, survive in an industry that needs or appears to need mass production? What's happened is the Swedes have done the sensible thing. They've said, we don't have a big submarine force, four or five submarines, uh, but you can maintain your white-collar design work by continually iterating the design. So rather than building, in the case of the UK, the Astute Submarine uh, uh, Contract is for seven boats, the French Barracuda Submarine uh, Contract is for six boats. Um, but in Sweden, they build two A26s, then they'll build and they'll design a, uh, an updated version, then they'll do another one and another. So every two boats, they effectively take a break, Work out what's changed, what's got more modern. So they're always keeping their designers fresh. And then how do you keep the production working? Well, the answer is you do all of your refit and overhaul in exactly the same production hall that you do your new build. Sounds messy? No, it's not. You build your new submarines. So the A-26 is sitting at the back end of a big hall. And in the front end of a big hall, they have simultaneously stripping down two, two existing submarines, which are going through major midlife refits and that keeps your uh, personnel um always you know working at opt- opt- optimal rates and it gives an e- uh, an economy of scale that offsets some of the diseconomy of size of the swedish submarine force so what do they need um they need the swedish, sub- uh, the swedish submarine strategy to stay as it is or improve i don't think that's a high risk at the moment sweden clearly sees submarines as a major strategic capability, probably more important to Sweden than, than grip and fighters would be my guess. Um, they would love exports. The Netherlands has got a big um export uh, contract for decision next year. The competition is um to St. Krupp in Germany and Naval Group uh in France. Um and, and Poland. And Poland, yes. And you know, beyond that, the, the Polish requirement is is slightly less defined at the moment, but you know, if anyone needs a Baltic submarine, it's the Poles. What did you hear about the Koreans? Because the Poles are um still
0: unfortunately a little skeptical about Germany. And there's been some talk that the Korean submarine
3: actually might strike their fancy as well. I think that's I think that's a possibility. Um I think that the Poles will have to see uh how well the um Koreans actually deliver all of the equipment, the army equipment that they've ordered from them, and aircraft. You know, the A fifty trainer aircraft, tanks, self propelled artillery. I think um, also with submarines. Submarines involves an even bigger level of technology transfer, and um, you know, tra- uh, uh, it's easier to do that across the Baltic between two nations that are part of NATO uh, than it may be to do from uh, Korea to uh you know korea to poland so i suspect the i mean the polish requirement i suspect is you know probably two years away in terms of placing the order but i think that um korea is getting the korea is going to have to up up a game in terms of tech transfer um and show that you know that, that they can genuinely offer the same level of cooperation uh that um that they can with the Uh, you know that Sweden can also I think the Korean requirement Korean submarines are clearly very capable but they are an oceanic submarine Poland would love an oceanic submarine but its prime requirement is a um, coastal submarine feels too derogatory but it's certainly a, a submarine for more enclosed waters and a variant of the A26 from Saab is arguably much more optimized for that Sash, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Looking forward
0: to having everybody together again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Argo. Great to be here as always. And thanks to all of you for joining us as well. We appreciate it very much. A very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible each week. And tune in uh, tomorrow to our week ahead uh, coverage uh, that is going to include a special guest. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend and we'll see you then.